Wooshka Studios. Listeners are advised that this podcast contains coarse language and adult themes and is not suitable for younger ears. It's a cloudy winter's morning and I'm back in farmer battered ute, driving through bushland on the outskirts of Warwick. The ute is shuddering across a potholed dirt track. You'll remember He was fossicking a few years ago through a public reserve called Morgan Park outside town and believes he may have stumbled across killer Vince O'Dempsey's private graveyard. Morgan Park, a tract of thick bushland just outside Vince's hometown, like Ghostgate Road, with the same hollow deadness and eerie remoteness. The same hardwood trees granite outcrops, caves and tall grass. A place with an identical type of atmosphere that puts all of your senses on alert and whispers to you, stay sharp, something terrible has happened here. We're getting closer and this time I've come back with a singular purpose, to see if the story we know about the McCulkins and their last horrifying moments matches this landscape. So, in 74, the possibility of you being seen here would be pretty remote. Yeah. You would never be seen here. Yeah. Why I'm thinking it's so attractive to someone like O'Dempsey is that it's not far from town, is it? It's not far from Stewart Avenue. That's right. Later on, when they were growing their stuff. Yeah. He used to meet, um, was at that road just opposite Morgan Park down there. Yeah. Dead horse line. Was has said that. They had meetings there, and I think one of their last meetings before Vince's arrest <coughs> yep. was down that, at that juncture there. Yep. So he knew this area. Oh, yeah, he knew this area for sure. Yeah. As we know from Peter Hall, who was told the story of the murders by Vince's accomplice and his then-friend, Shorty Dubois, the day after the killings, is this. Vince parked the orange charger close to bushland so the car wouldn't get scratched. Barbara and the girls, Vicky and Leanne, had their hands bound and were marched through a shallow creek. Along the banks of the creek were some willow trees. Then the murder party proceeded up a hill for some time. They reached the graveyard. Then the McCulkin girls were raped and killed. The story is told by Shorty Dubois to Peter Hall the next day, January 17, 1974, was that it was somewhere uh, outside Warwick that they'd walked Barbara and the girls through a shallow creek and up a slight rise. Yep, take you out that way. Yeah. I mean, what do you think you found? Uh, well, I reckon there's body being buried there. Yeah. So. And there's more than one one grave site there. Oh yeah, yeah, I think so too. But this is the main one. Is. I mean, if the stories are true, then the 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 
the quote private graveyard of Vincent Dempsey. Yeah. More than one person in there. Yeah, that's right. I need to know if there was a back road to the Morgan Park Reserve. Vince would not risk being seen by driving the bright charger with three women tied up in the back seat through the main entrance. So in 1974, if you wanted to get into Morgan Park but you didn't want to park where your car could be seen at any point, is there a back way into it? Well... Or was there? Well, you come... Where we come from the yards down there, yeah. along there, I think there was a couple of old gates. Right. There. We drive around the perimeter fence of Morgan Park and true this to his word, takes me to the rear entrance here. to this tract of bush. He knows this place. He says the dirt road into the rear of this bushland has been there for decades. So this this would be would have been the road into the back of Morgan Park. Yep. Yep. Well, yeah, you could come in this way or the other way. Here's the creek. Here's the creek. Has it got a name? Well, Glengallen Connolly Dam's on it, and it comes down into Warwick. So where would the willow trees have been by the by the creek? Well, there is willow trees just along there everywhere. Oh, it's got willow trees on it. Yep. ...identifies a decent road where a car might be parked without getting damaged. Then the creek and the willow trees. All that remains is the final journey up a rise to the gravesite. There's the track that runs just up there to, to the graves. OK, so that... And that's, that was always there, that track. So that's an old track yeah. that runs up to the graves about 400 metres. Yeah. Creek, willows, a track and steady ascent through the bush to the graves. I get back into his ute, and for a while, we say nothing. This just might be it. The map to Vince's best-kept secret. From Wooshka Studios, I'm Matthew Condon, and this is Ghost Gate Road. In this episode, Vince and Diane, on the run, spend years trying to keep one step ahead of the police. People around Vince continue to go missing. Even a coroner's recommendation that he be charged with the murder of the McCulkins fails to stick. And he looks home free until two modern-day cold-case detectives set their crosshairs on this relentless killer. Go down, which you can't see him turn around, throw him in the car and do a cold, just a cold murder in front of the barrier. 
too much happens around him, mate. That's not coincidence. No, they, they just disappear and appear. We had to start off with this investigation, as we did, and start to pull these other ones together. So, far more than a couple incidents. And she grabbed the stock and pointed it and pulled the trigger. Vince, on the run, might logically decide to keep a low profile, to draw no attention to himself, to damp down his wildest instincts and disappear into the crowd. He had police looking for him. Then two Queensland detectives would launch the most serious investigation ever conducted into his life and crimes. You'd presume it would have been sensible for Vince to have gone off-grid. But the opposite happened. In the almost six years between the murder of the McCulkins and Vince's arrest and appearance at a coronial inquest in 1980, he wandered the east coast of Australia, shacking up with criminal associates, taking refuge in Catholic presbyteries and remote Christian camps, sometimes hiding out in a caravan. He learned, during those lost years, to bury what might be called escape kits off highways and byways if he ever got caught in a jam. Bundles of drugs, cash and weapons. Just in case. And during that time frame, Brisbane brothel madam Simone Vogel, who had strong links to both Vince and Diane, disappeared. Hitchhikers on roads and highways familiar to Vince vanished without trace. There were murders, including that of a child linked to Vince's psychopath mate, gangster Stuart John Regan, and a petty thief who was involved in rebirthing stolen cars with corrupt police in Brisbane. Vince allegedly raped both men and women, his mates having either witnessed or been told about the atrocities by Vince himself and brutal assaults on his long-suffering de facto partner, Diane Pritchard. One of those who had a first-hand view of Vince on the run was his old mate Gary Lawrence. Lawrence lived and worked with Vince on and off during that time and saw things he'd rather forget. You see, I think why he got away with all the fucking murders and everything, because there was no DNA, there was no fucking dead-set cameras. There was, like, you could kill some cunt back them days and fucking did said the chance of getting pinched if you'd left enough, no body enough around would be fucking zero if it ever talked. Yeah. Now, fuck me dead, you know what I mean? They, you couldn't even fucking go down the rocket road here and the fucking six cunt see you on a fucking camera or That's fucking right. DNA. And... Do you have any doubt that Vince is a killer? Oh, I know, I reckon he is there. That's uh, my opinion. <laughs> mm. Too much happens around him, mate. Too much. It can't be that. It, it, that that's not coincidence. It's too, too, too strong. It's too too much evidence. You know, it's just you know, they, they just disappear and appear. Almost six years of total madness before police finally had their man. Six years of blood and violence and fraud, and an ever rising count of missing persons. What happened to Margaret Grace Ward, the country girl who ended up working in Vince's massage parlour, Polonia's, and vanished before she could testify in court against Diane Pritchard? And did Vince have anything to do with the disappearance of brothel madam Simone Vogel, 
who was having problems with corrupt police and had been having arguments with Diane, who occasionally worked in Vogel's Brisbane brothels during this period. Murphy was desperate to find Vince and have a word with him. He'd lost control of his prized informant. His Frankenstein was on the loose. Within days of the murders, Vince and his de facto Diane fled Queensland and slipped over the border into New South Wales. They headed straight to a place called Hawk's Nest, a small coastal village just north of Newcastle, a couple of hours' drive from Sydney. Vince knew clockwork orange ganger Peter Hall was staying there with a mate, Bob. You might remember Bob. He was the prisoner released from Boggo Road the same day as Vince at the end of 1970 and heard Vince say, it's a black day for society today. Shorty had given Vince Peter's phone number down south and Hall remembers Vince and Di turning up. Did you know that Vince was going to come and crash in on the scene or, or did he just turn up? No, he just turned up, yeah. Well, he, he was already there. And he stayed um, with you guys. Well, he got his own place ultimately, but he stayed with you guys for a, for a little bit? He, yeah, he stayed, stayed there with for a little bit, yeah. And were you staying with too at that time? Only for the short time I was down there, then I went back up to Brisbane. Hall said he suspected Vince had killed the McCulkins. He still didn't want to believe that Shorty was involved. Peter and Bob remember one startling thing about Vince when they first saw him. He had shaved his hair an inch or two back from his actual hairline. They assumed this was a partial disguise, that Vince was trying to create the illusion that he was balding or that his hair was receding. Peter recalled that Vince was more peculiar than usual at that time. I don't know what he was up to. Like he was drawing maps, and he come out with things that were really stupid. Some of it might have come from when he was in the army before they, uh, before they threw him out. He kept coming out with these stupid sayings, like shoot for the the chest. Don't try and shoot him in the shoulder or the leg because you might miss. But aim for the largest part of the body, and and then he was showing us boulder formation. Three formation that had us some stitches of laughter. And, uh, oh, this is how to sort of camouflage yourself in the in the bush. Yeah, like I thought, one arm up above your head, one out to one side. That was tree formation. Boulder formation. You had to get down and crouch on the ground on your hands and knees and sort of roll your body up as tight as you could. Oh God, that might help a little bit in the dark. But um, in broad daylight, you'd still see it with a person. That's right. I would have honestly thought it would have been better to hide behind a tree, not stand like tree formation. <laughs> we ran out of the joint, got in the car, drove up around the corner and just couldn't stop laughing. I don't know how you can explain it. He is very intelligent in some cases, but... 
with Gordon being insane in others, mm. some of the things that come out of his mouth. Did you notice anything different about him, given that he'd just murdered a woman and two children, you know, pretty much the week before? No, not that I knew that well, but he just didn't seem any different to what he'd normally been. Peter and Bob tolerated Vince's bizarre behaviour. Vince talked about robbing banks, about shootouts with police, how you used a 303 rifle for long-range work and 45 pistols for close killing. Then one day, Bob took Vince surf fishing. Bob loved to fish and was an experienced angler. Vince was not. For decades, keen fishermen had thrown in a line around the twin villages of Hawk's Nest and Tea Gardens, separated by the Mile River on the northern shores of Port Stephens. You could almost guarantee catching blackfish off the Tea Gardens jetty, brim and flathead from the Hawk's Nest boat ramp, and plenty of tailor, dart and jewfish off Hawk's Nest's Bennett's Beach or the main beach, as locals called it. Bob's favourite spot was up the beach, and Vince and Di tagged along. At some point, Bob reached into his fishing bag and realised he'd mislaid the paring knife he used to cut up bait. That's when Vince said to him, Here, you can use my knife. The knife itself resembled a scout's knife, It had some weight to it, but the blade wasn't overly long. They fished. Vince could hardly get the hook and bait in the water. He'd cast, and the line would tangle behind him. Diane made jokes about how hopeless he was. Then they all went back home. When Vince asked for his knife back, Bob couldn't find it in the tackle bag. He'd lost Vince's knife too and Vince went off his brain. I'll buy you another knife, Bob said. But Vince was beside himself. I trusted you to keep it safe, Vince went on. Vince was so distraught about the lost knife that he went back to the beach to search for it, but it was gone for good. Peter Hall remembers the blow-up. That will go down in the annals of history and, and how lucky was the not to get killed because he laughed when he blew up about him losing the knife. Then he said, it's just a knife, we'll get you another one. He said, that's not the same. And it didn't dawn on us until much later that God knows how many people he killed with that knife. That's why he was so attached to it. You actually saw him blow up? I did see him having a whinge later on about the night. Mm. God. And I thought to myself, then we bring a knife, you know, it's replace it. But you, <laughs> you wouldn't have thought at the time that it was probably a, a serial kill, killer's um, treasured Maybe possession. Weapon. Yeah. Like they say, uh, they like to take trophies off their victims. Mm. 
well, this this would be extra special because I suppose you can only sort of try and guess how many people he killed with it. Oh, like the joke, the joke was he only told Carol it's daughter. I've only killed thirty or thirty odd, to, and that was to to make her feel safer. More like a hundred thirty, but uh, I don't know. Things like that when you, you look back there and, and, and think to yourself, we are both lucky that nothing bad happened to us. Did Vince lose his mind over the knife because it was actually the weapon that had ended the lives of the McCulkins less than a week earlier? Was it a serial killer's trophy now lost forever to the tides of Port Stephens? It was not the only drama involving Vince in Hawk's Nest. There was the issue of his pathological fascination with female hitchhikers. One day, Peter, Bob and Vince planned to steal a safe from a business in a nearby country town. They drove to the job. Vince sat in the back seat, heavily armed. Bob tells the story. We had to go and get a trolley to put the safe on. Well, fucking Vince, he's sitting in the back with a fucking big gun and fuck knows what else he had there. So we drove up to Maxville and I thought there'd be something around here somewhere if I went or something. But it, it might have been a Saturday. I think it would have been over the Easter weekend or whatever. Yeah. And out there was a, a news agent there who would have been more than just a news agent or nothing shop so I drove down the lane where it was I was driving and I jumped out and I just the roller door was up a little bit so I rolled and then come out with the fucking trolley mm. threw it in the back seat went on Vince's gun oh no fucking gun watch what you're doing oh, oh. and then we were driving back and there's this girl hitchhiking on the other side of the road he said go down where she can't see and turn around fucking throw in the car and do a coldie, that means a, just a cold murder and fucking barrier. A coldie. Coldie called it, that's what he meant by it. It might have been exactly, that's what he sort of meant, you know. Mm. I said, leave me out of that fucking shit. Straight up, Peter Hall's laughing. Mm. And after we got out of the car, and that, we went for a beer or something, and Peter... And I said to Peter, don't fucking laugh at that cunt. They'll think you were in, in agreeance with him. Mm. I said, fucking silly enough now. Yeah. And didn't you say you you were... you? I mean, you guys were in the front seat, right, and you were worried... Um, oh, I thought, fuck, all the hair went up on the back of my neck. Well, oh, God, I think that's a shoot me or something. Yeah. yeah. So a total... Total opportunist. Yeah. How many has he done like that? Oh. I told that he said to me, McDowry, how many do you think he's killed us? That's probably a hundred. Yeah. He laughed. I said, I don't you fucking laugh for that. Yeah. I said, time tells you he would have killed that many people. Yeah. And the only time he stops is when he's in jail. Yeah. Then there was the incident with Diane and the gun. Bob, for the life of him, couldn't understand why she stayed in a relationship with Vince. What he witnessed at Hawk's Nest was just a glimpse into what must have been a relentless nightmare for Diane. Why the hell 
did Diane Pritchard stay with Vince after e- everything know. he'd done? You know what? I don't know. I just, I don't know. I, For the life of me, I don't know. I mean, he he played up on her. He um, pimped her out as a prostitute. Um, I, I don't know what more a, a man could do so foul against his partner, and she still hung around. He, I think she was given to him by that Reagan or somebody. Stuart John Reagan. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you met her. Was she? Was she in a sort of almost permanent state of inebriation, or what? What was her mental yeah, state? Yeah, if you let, if you, if you let her go. And she just, just. And drank. you know, I felt that. Oh, I the way he treated her. Fuck. You know, he, he never give her. I don't know what it was, but you know, and to fall, you know, she's sort of the golden-hearted prostitute, for want of a better term. Yeah. Oh, she fucking. Because she had just, good, had good qualities, thing. didn't she? She had you recognised yeah, her. They, yeah, I could see it. And what were they? What did you see? Well, she was kind as a kitten. She'd do anything if anyone, you know, just so you said, "Oh, I haven't got any money." Mm. Well, she wouldn't have happened. If she had, she would have given it to you. you know? mm. Mm. I've seen her give people stuff, and, mm. but you couldn't let her go to a pub or anything. You'd have to get her out. Because what would happen? She was, but then, if he, she was sort of different when he wasn't there. I think she'd laugh a lot more and that sort of stuff. You know. I mean, did you ever see her, him beat her, or backhand her? Or? Yeah, I think I, I can't remember where. I'm pretty sure I seen him fucking backhand her or something. He tied her up when he came down to where I was. Yeah. A fat shorty giving me number and that. Mm. When me and Peter all were there, we were getting the day somewhere. She got on the fucking drink on that. Because me and Peter used to have the drink. And what are you going to say? You can't. Have, no, you can't have one. Mm. <laughs> you know, the next thing he's got to fucking tie it up. But everyone had their limits, and Diane seemed to have reached hers when they were hiding out in Hawk's Nest. Bob saw the moment. With his own eyes. I know when he backhanded her. Mm. There was a gun there or something and he had it. And she said, oh, that doesn't even work. And he had all the he had held him halfway and she grabbed the stock and pointed it at him and pulled the trigger. You kidding. The safety was gone. Uh, <laughs> and what, it wasn't loaded? That, that, was, that was around, that was the time when uh, that comment come out, something about it, I couldn't catch it properly. Was this down at Hawk's Nest? Yeah. And she pulled, she grabbed the gun and she actually pulled the trigger? Pulled the trigger. And there were were no bullets in it? No bullets or the safety was off. Both Peter and Bob witnessed the altercation and heard Di say to Vince as she held the gun... You took my friend away. She was talking about the young country girl, Margaret Grace Ward, who had worked with Di and Polonius and had mysteriously disappeared in late 1973. And then he backhanded her after that. Yeah. 
Oh, my God. Do you reckon she knew it was not loaded? No, she tried to kill him. Oh, my God. So the only way that she could escape Vince, really, was to kill him? Yeah. After a few weeks, Peter and Bob saw enough of Vince's unhinged and erratic behaviour to prepare themselves for the worst. They both bought new shotguns to kill Vince if they had to. Peter Hall said something really interesting to me, almost like he was talking to himself. It was funny. He said he wished he'd personally killed O'Dempsey when he had the chance and that he might have saved some lives if he did. Yeah. What do you think about that? Well, it was true because we went and bought two shotguns. Yeah. When we left there, I said to Peter, I said, this bloke can't live without us. I said, he'll be trying to contact us. Mm. And if he rang where Peter was at Carol and Scully's, he could talk to there. And uh, I said, he's, I said, if he, I said, I'm not going back near that bloke ever again in my fucking life, mm. which I should have kept me word about it. And uh, I said, if he starts hassling us and demand that we go down and see him again. I said, we've got to end it because he'll end up killing us both, you know that. Mm. So we went and bought two brand new pump actions. Was you that buy a gun over the counter then these Was that after Hawk's Nest? Yeah. So you I mean you 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 twigged early, very early on, didn't you, that and probably Peter too, that um you had to I be well, you had to be alert around Vince and that he could literally do anything, including kill you. Well, look what happened. He wanted to kill that hitchhiker. Yeah. Every day he'd come out with a new fucking map he'd drawn and we need long-range weapons and short-range weapons and automatic weapons. Mm. In case we get a chase, you need a couple of 303s because they're good long range, you can get them there. All this shit he used to go on with. See, I think he thought he was off to never, to never get out over the McCulkins. Yeah. And uh, he didn't want that. We wanted to go out in a blaze of glory. He wanted a couple of bucket idiots he could have round him to sort of so he could be the boss and all this shit, you know. I mean, how do you think he... How did he view himself, if that's how he wanted to go? It was like some weird sort of movie star. Yeah, I think that's what was it. And, and that's when he was talking about a rubbish bomb under the CIB and Brisbane. <laughs> yeah. And all that. Yeah. So he, he actually wanted to be notorious. It looks that way, yeah. So that, that points to a very healthy ego, doesn't it? Oh, he's got the ego, don't worry. But but you, um, if you were under threat from this guy, because you knew what he was like, you wouldn't hesitate to kill him. No, you have to make sure you got the drop on him. You couldn't miss. Yeah. And did you and Peter ever discuss that, if it got to that? That's why we bought the fucking shotguns to kill him. If it happened to come to that, I said, he's only got a... We knew he only had a pistol left. That's the only armaments he had. Yeah. And I said, we'll just get... You know, we discussed it and we agreed and just get straight out of the car I can give it to him with the shotguns.
After several weeks in Hawk's Nest, Vince and Diane were on the move again. They had resolved their feud as they always managed to do, despite Diane pointing a pistol at Vince and pulling the trigger. They dropped into Sydney, a city that had always had plenty of work for a gunman like Vince, but this time around, the rules had changed. The underworld was aware that Vince may have been involved in the disappearance and murder of the McCulkins. He had broken the sacred code. Women and children were off limits. So Sydney's big mobsters and its criminal gangs wiped their hands of Vince O'Dempsey. His work dried up to nothing. He was forced to live off the earnings of Diane who was back on the streets as a prostitute. Maybe the underworld had had enough of psychopaths in its ranks. In September 1974, when Vince was in Sydney, his doppelganger friend, gangster Stuart John Regan, was gunned down on the evening of Sunday, September 22, in the streets of Marrickville. He was shot once in the back and fell to the ground before being shot another seven times in the back of the head and chest. The bullets came from three different 38 caliber revolvers. Around this time, Vincent Dye headed north again and crossed into Queensland near Warwick to meet up briefly with Shorty. Vince had suggested to Dye they disappear into the bush and live in a dugout surviving off the land, returning to a primal existence. She didn't go for it. They were back in Sydney in the first half of 1975, where, as we know, Vince was charged with possession of a sawn-off shotgun and living off the earnings of prostitution, and it was at this time that he was interviewed extensively by Detective White from Brisbane. He served a year in jail on those charges, then felt comfortable enough to return to Queensland where, stony broke, he secured one of the few legitimate jobs in his lifetime. He worked, along with his mate Gary Lawrence, painting houses up and down the Queensland coast. Vince turned up each day in immaculate white overalls, and at the end of a day's work, an obsessive Vince would completely dismantle, clean and rebuild the spray-painting guns. Once, Vince helped a customer pick the colour scheme for her house with disastrous results. One member of the painting crew who worked alongside Vince remembered. Anyway, the colours picked out were mission brown for the main body of the house and burnt orange for the trims. From then on, the place was known as the Jaffa. At one point, around 1977, Vince and Di moved in with Gary Lawrence and his then-wife Deidre at their house in Brisbane's Holland Park on the city's south side. That's when Vince and Di had a big fight. What he did to Di was an act that shocked even hardened crim Gary, and it terrified Deidre 
She would later tell police. They had just finished painting a house and had come home for tea. I remember at dinner, Gary and the others were drinking. O'Dempsey wasn't, but he'd fired up when the boys drank. He was talking about tying Diane up. I remember he said he left her tied up on the bedroom floor at the house. I was shocked by this. I remember Vince said to me, I've tied people up and put them in shallow graves all over Australia. He kind of laughed when he said it, but the way he said it, he meant it. The comments scared me. Gary Lawrence remembers a night when all hell broke loose. I'm lying there with my shoe under the sheet and next minute I hear all this ruckus because and, 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 I was being drinking, I was pretty drunk and, I, and my girl woke up screaming, right? And next minute die, she's at the door, blood on her all over her hands and she had this big fucking car and I, she'd been poking it under the door trying to fucking poke it, right? And it broke the fucking handle, right? And she'd got the fucking knife and she's yelling at my shoe, you started this, you were the one that fucking come out and give me up. And, then, and she wanted to stab me fucking Sheila, right? And I jumped in the bed because I had no fucking clothes on. So I've got the fucking sheet and I'm saying, to her, I'm saying, what are you doing, daughter? And she's trying to fucking stab me, mate. Oh, yeah, I've got the fucking sheet and she's stabbing the fucking sheet, yes. right? And I yelled out, Vince, get out and get this fucking cunt of liver for all and I'll smash her fucking head in. So he opened the door and he come out and he grabbed her and took her in there, right? And dragged her into the fucking bedroom, right? What happened next gave Gary a deeply disturbing snapshot of Vince's psychopathology. He'd taken all the clothes off her. He had a fucking hog tied on, let them in. No clothes on for three days out of there and, and laying there and, and saying things to him. And at the end, I fucking was getting a bit worried after fucking three days. Mm. And I said to him, Is you had no clothes on in the fucking room? I said, Mate, you can't go in. I said, All this fucking noise. Man. I said, The coppers are all the fucking coming on there. I said, Fucking got her tied up in there and no fucking clothes on there. I said, You can't fucking do this. And I said, let her go, you know. And I said, just fucking untie her, fuck it, you know. It's my fucking joint. So he untied her and she fucking got a clothes that she fucking ran out the fucking place, right? And then she sat outside on my fence for a fucking day and a night and didn't come in, just sat out in the fucking, fucking fence, right? I thought, oh, fair dinkum, fuck, I don't know. Vince and Di had been a couple for about five years. And during that time, he had pimped her out as a prostitute, slept with other women, verbally and physically abused her, and left her tied up and alone for days at a time. She was surely aware that he was a rapist and now a woman and child killer. But what kept Di in Vince's orbit? Friends and colleagues who knew them both uniformly shake their head over the partnership even today. They said Di was a hopeless drunk, a woman trapped in a cycle impossible to escape. Bob remembers her with sadness. I, I mean, I'm, I'm tempted to look at poor Di, poor Di and say that she had a death wish. Staying with she him. She could have done too, yeah. She had nothing. He never gave her. You know, there was just nothing. Mm. I know when I cracked it, I'd give her I had a master 626 that was about... Well, I say three or four year old, I gave her that. I said, You have a car, I can get around. Mm. I can put your light. It was only that, or you give it to the car yard for a trade in, it wouldn't have made any difference. You know? mm. Mm. And at the time, it didn't make any difference to me. But there was a good soul in there somewhere. Yeah. Mm. Jesus was fucking well buried, though. <laughs> 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 um, but there was, you know, I, she was. I don't want to criticise her 
because she's dead, but was she, what was she like as a mother? Uh, well, she was from the Virgin Mary. Mm. And, but she'd try for the kids, but she just had no hope. She, she was like a kid more than anything, you know, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. I think she'd had, she must have had a shit of a life in her day. I don't know what happened to her. Mm. But I know she got that bloody sentence in Sydney. Mm. And the fact that she used to go out and prostitute herself and come back and give that cunt the money. Mm. Mm. Gary told me that he used to make a hitchhike instead of catching a bus or a train to save money. Mm. When we were up at the psalm singers. Yeah, God. God. So very sad. You know, fuck it. I don't believe people should be degraded like that. Yeah. It's a Friday night in early 1977 and police of all ranks have gathered for drinks after work in the Queensland Police Club on the top floor of a building in Makerston Street in Brisbane. The club was famous for its conviviality and one specific item on the menu, crab pot lunches. It was said some senior police regularly flew up from Sydney under the guise of business but really came for the meaty Moreton Bay crabs. And the club tradition had always been that if senior officers had had a few too many, young police would be tasked with getting their superiors home safely. On this particular Friday night, Queensland Police Constables Alan Marshall and Trevor Mennery were asked just that, to chauffeur home a boss. This time, it was none other than Detective Tony Murphy, head of the Brisbane CIB, who had recently been promoted to Assistant Commissioner. Marshall recalls the moment that changed his and his partner's careers. Friday night, he'd been to the police club. Uh, We asked to go over and pick him up and convey him to his residence. And he said, well, you know, I want to look at cleaning up some more of these unsolved murders. It was obvious by the time that he wasn't real happy with what was happening in the homicide squad. And, and anyway, he said, look, you know, there's one there. It's the Mokulkin from the Gabba. It's in your area. Um, I'd like you to think about whether you'd like to do this or not. And, and uh, Trevor said, well, you know, when the chief of the CIB asks you to do something, you don't turn around and say no. Mm. And we met with Murphy and he said uh, that we would have to work from the Gabba. So do you think he was serious about this investigation? I yeah, I did. Yeah. yeah. So with uh, you've so agreed to do the McCulkin reinvestigation, mm-hmm. so this is three years after... The disappearances. Yeah, I'm sure it was. Yeah. Um, was the first thing you did grab the case file? Yeah. Yeah. If you could call it that. Yeah. What, what did you find? How did well, even after all these years? What What did you find? Well, we found uh, several sheets of paper of running sheets, and that was about it. Totally disorganised. Oh, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. 
not too much detail at all. Was it almost like starting from scratch? It was. We, yeah. We, well, that's what we did. We sat down and looked. Uh, we had to organise photographs that uh, had been taken, had never been developed. You're kidding. They'd never been developed. Never been developed. Finally, more than three years after they vanished, two honest police officers were asked by Murphy to solve the McCulkin cold case. But why, especially as Vince, the prime suspect, was Murphy's star informant? Why would Murphy try and bring down Vince? Or was that really what he was doing? On the surface, Murphy had two good men looking to solve an horrific presumed triple murder. As head of the CIB, it appeared that Murphy was acting responsibly. Marshall and Mennery reported directly to him. But let's play the devil's advocate for a minute. Murphy was solely in charge of the new investigation. And ultimately, it gave him control of the narrative, should anything surprising be uncovered. Murphy had a second agenda. He was trying to find his loose cannon. Vince was of no fixed address. A psychopath without anchor. What Murphy didn't know at that moment, however, was that Vince had taken refuge in the arms of Jesus. Welcome to A New Way of Living. Coming to you today from Christian Outreach Centre, located at 100 Victoria Street, West End, Brisbane. I invite you to stay tuned as we worship and praise our God together. That's Pastor Clark Taylor, son of a Queensland farmer and Australia's first tele-evangelist. He helped found the Christian Outreach Centre Ministry, which by the late 1970s had several churches and a special Bible college at the foot of Mount Tuchikoi outside Gympie, north of Brisbane. It's where Killer Vince and his partner Diane Pritchard turned up while on the run from authorities. Vince helped with manual labour and maintenance around the property and occasionally ran some Bible courses. As for Diane, she continued to earn money by hitchhiking to Brisbane and working shifts for brothel madam Simon Vogel, who had taken over Vince's massage parlour, Polonia's, after he was forced to abandon it following the McCulkin murders. The Bible college suited Vince. He knew the good book back to front. And this is one of the more curious contradictions about Vince. He had been raised a good Catholic boy in Warwick to parents who were devoted to the church and worshipped every day. At the same time, Vince had criticised the church and was certain that the decorative markings on the Pope's tall hat, or metre, was the 666 mark of the devil. Hadn't he been visited by the devil in his cell in Bogger Road Jail in Brisbane in the 1960s? Still, during his years on the run after the McCulkin murders, according to police investigations and criminal associates, he often sought shelter with religious groups. 
He and Di had been taken in variously by the Church of the Latter-day Saints in Mwollomba in far northern New South Wales, in Catholic quarters in Brisbane, and now by Pastor Clark and his spiritual family at the foot of Mount Tuchikoi. Pastor Clark had even formally married Vince and Di. But Detectives Marshall and Maneri were on Vince's tail. About two years later, both detectives went to pay Vince a visit at the Bible College. Also present were two federal police officers who wanted to interview Vince about a scam linked to the national health insurer then called Medibank that he'd been involved in with Gary Lawrence. The scam had been cooked up a couple of years earlier when Vince and Gary were working together as house painters. Gary and others were arrested, charged and jailed for the fraud, but no authorities came near Vince until now. So we, we went up there with, with the view that, OK, we want to talk to him about the murders. <clears throat> Conroy and, and Adams had sufficient evidence to just put their hand on his shoulder and say you're under arrest for imposition, forgery, this and that, that were all to do with Medibank frauds. That's right, yeah. So <clears throat> what we thought we'd do, <clears throat> we would uh, let Conroy and Adam, this is a fatal mistake, uh, Conroy and Adams to, to talk to him and if he told them, told them nothing, well, they were then to leave the room and then we'd come in and we'd start interviewing him about the other things. But it didn't happen that way. Um, they went in and they sat down and said, well, look, we only want to talk to you about imposition. Uh, we've got these documents, these, you know, all these things, da 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 And he said, oh, the state police... Adams and said the state police want to talk to you about some murders. So guess what happens? He says, look, I'll tell you what, I'll do a deal with you. If you get me a solicitor, I will admit to to these things for you. To, to their charges of imposition, etc. Up, up until this point in O'Dempsey's career, he has never confessed to a thing. Now... If you have a look at all court documents and everything, Dempsey will tell you, you're the detective, you go and fuck and we'll find out. Or, or no comment. Or no comment. Yeah. That's it. So so this uh, uh, solicitor turns up, uh, so we're, standing, we're hovering around out in the veranda waiting on our turn to get hold of him. And, of course, we get in there, it's no comment, no comment, no comment. We've got nowhere to go. So that, that was our interview with him. Somehow, Vince had managed to use the federal police and their petty charges to blindside the Queensland police, who were desperate to interview him about the McCulkins. Then they pulled Diane Pritchard aside. Would you mind if I got a Christian here while you search? We haven't got any guns here. We're Christians now, and we don't need them. We are making investigations into the disappearance of Barbara May McCorkin and her two daughters. Was Mrs McCorkin and her two daughters known to you? Yes. You're not trying to put that onto Vince too, are you? Vince told me not to say anything to you and I've already said enough. 
I was a prostitute. I found God now. I am a Christian. These people here are wonderful. I've seen them make legs grow. I went close to the stage to have a look before I believed it. As for Vince, he could feel the noose tightening. In an act of supreme arrogance, he issued a press release. He said of being questioned by detectives Marshall and Maneri. Recently, I was asked certain questions about certain matters by the state police. I made no comment to any of these questions. That was in conformance with a legal directive which had been sent some years ago to the police commissioner in Queensland. I shall not be making any further comment to the police regarding these matters. He protested his innocence and Vince said Barbara McCulkin had left the family home in Dorchester Street because of Billy's philandering. Vince added, If it had not been for the fact that I had contravened some of society's laws in the past, I doubt very much if these suggestions regarding these matters would have ever been made. I have given away my former lifestyle and have become an active Christian and I don't wish to be bothered with this matter again. Despite their setbacks, Detectives Marshall and Maneri believed they had enough evidence and witnesses to get Vince and Shorty Dubois charged with the McCulkin murders. On a humid February day in 1980, the Brisbane suburb of Holland Park six kilometres southeast of the Brisbane CBD, hosted the biggest show in town in its dour magistrate's court. The inquest into the disappearance and suspected murders of the McCulkins, massage parlour worker Margaret Grace Ward and Tommy Allen. Why a case of such importance was shoved into a suburban courthouse is a mystery, but the inquest held before coroner Robert William Bourgeois, saw a daily parade of the city's criminal underclass dodging newspaper and television journalists and their cameras out front. Chief suspect Vince Dempsey, who happened to be in custody on minor cannabis charges, you will hear more about his drug operations later in the podcast, was brought from the cells and into the court, guarded by eight police officers. He was manacled to the bar table with two sets of handcuffs. In Bogger Road, the screws had nicknamed him Silent Death. He was the first witness. And these are the initial exchanges between Vince and counsel assisting the coroner, Gary Forno. Mr O'Dempsey, your full name, please. No comment. Would you tell us your present address, please? No comment. Are you married or single? No comment. You're aware, Mr O'Dempsey, are you not, that this is, or these are, coronial inquiries into the disappearance of, firstly, Vincent Raymond Allen, secondly, Margaret Grace Ward, and thirdly, Barbara May McCulkin, Vicky Marie and Barbara Leanne McCulkin. Are you aware of...? No comment. First of all, do you know... Vincent Raymond Allen. No comment. Do you know Margaret Grace Ward? No comment. Do you know Barbara May McCulkin? No comment. Or Vicky Marie or Barbara Leanne McCulkin? No comment. And so it went on. 
In the end, after Vince answered no comment 39 times before the coroner, Councillor Forno temporarily abandoned his cross-examination. In the end, on April 2, 1980, after almost two months of evidence, Forno and Vince's legal counsel, Mr Clare, gave their final submissions and Coroner Bourgeois announced his findings. The coroner didn't believe there was sufficient evidence to place anyone on trial for the deaths of Allen and Ward. As for the McCulkins, that was a different story. Bourgeois concluded, I consider there is a body of circumstantial evidence upon which, taken as a whole, and I emphasise, as a whole, a jury could reasonably infer O'Dempsey and Dubois are responsible for the deaths of Mrs McCulkin and her two daughters. Vincent O'Dempsey, you stand charged that on or about the 16th day of January 1974, at Brisbane, in the state of Queensland, that you murdered one Barbara May McCulkin. Vince was also charged with the murders of Vicky and Leanne. An arrest warrant was issued for Dubois. On hearing this, Vince finally spoke. I'm not guilty, Your Worship. I've never hurt anyone, nor do I know anyone who could have hurt anyone in relation to this matter. Vince was committed for trial in the Supreme Court. Did he seem worried? He didn't need to be. Vince had been charged with three murders, but he knew he wouldn't spend a minute in jail for those crimes because the fix was already in. Incredibly, while in custody on triple murder charges, Vince received a message from the corrupt elements of the Queensland police hierarchy that his case would never reach trial. And that while Vince might have been charged with the McCulkin murders as a result of the inquest, he would not be convicted of that crime. And it begs the question, was the system so venal so corrupt, and Vince such a protected species that he could literally get away with murder. In late 1980, several months after Coroner Bourgeois' recommendations that Vince and Shorty be tried for the triple murders, Queensland Crown Legal Officer Angelo Vasta recommended that the charges against both men be dropped. The evidence he concluded, was incapable of establishing a prima facie case for murder. A no true bill was filed. Vince had slipped the noose again. Just as the little cottage in Dorchester Street has for years drawn me back time and again, I have developed a more recent obsession with Morgan Park outside Warwick and those haunting depressions in the earth that just might be human graves. The police always said Vince's private graveyard will be located somewhere where he feels comfortable. But right now, 
there's an important matter of business to attend to. Hello, Helen Roebuck speaking. Oh, Helen, hello. It's My name's Matt Condon. Hi. How are you? I'm good, thank you. I'm just completing a podcast about a uh, serial killer called Vince Dempsey out of Queensland. Yeah. And he, um, um, uh, in the course of my investigation, I've discovered what appear to be human graves in a forest outside of a town called Warwick. And I have samples from those graves of soil and other matter, and I'm just looking looking peripherally uh, into uh, whether there is an institution or or a group such as yourself that could deal with the testing of that material for human bone. Yeah, so if you're um, looking at bone um, material, you'd need a specialist unit to do that. Let me just, just thinking of one person who might be useful. So is bone like a category unto its own for testing? Yeah, so, I mean, we we kind of call it ancient DNA. Well, we used to call it ancient DNA or or degraded DNA. Uh, It doesn't, we don't process bones with the standard technology that we use day to day for crime scenes. Um, Just to get DNA from a bone is quite tricky and it needs a specialist um, technique and particularly if you're talking graves. um, Somebody you could speak to would be um, Jeremy Austin, A-U-S-T-I-N. And he has an ancient DNA unit. He is based at the University of Adelaide. Um, He's well well-renowned in the field, so I would say he would definitely be a good first port of call. Ghostgate Road is produced by Wooshka Studios. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Visit ghostgateroad.com for additional material and a full list of credits, and search for the official Ghostgate Road discussion group on Facebook. (laughs) 